Well, I'm, I'm satisfied with my world reputation, which in which I am not uh, categorized within the ghetto. Uh, it's really just in the United States that I'm still stuck in the ghetto. I don't really care. Um, it, you know, like, I can't even, if you ask me at this moment to define science fiction, I couldn't even do it for you. I mean, it's like jazz. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I won't quote any of the cliches, but I'm sure you know what I mean. Uh, I, I would rather reach a broader audience, but in no way do I repudiate the science fiction audience. Dickheads like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from Southern California and Ohio to your brain holes. We are your personal dickheads. We have not turned an argument with our wives into a book, but Philip K. Dick did. And that's called The Man Whose Teeth are, Were All Alike. I am David Agronoff, the author of The Last Night to Kill Nazis, a book that just recently came out. On my left, on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube, maybe, or is it different for all of us? It'll be, it should be on your right. Wait. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, it would be on your right. Coming from Ohio to your brain holes, Professor David Harlan Wilson. David, tell them who you are and what you do. Hello. I'm who you said I am. <laughs> uh, I will plug my uh, uh, latest book, uh, Nietzsche. The Unmanned Autohagiography. Ah, good man. Thank you. Uh, Raw Dog Screaming Press is the publisher. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's an ultra biography and metafiction and satire and all kinds of fun, I hope. And I'm pretty sure Philip K. Dick gets mentioned at least once in it. Yes, but... at least, uh, several times, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if I can crowbar him in, I try to. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and Professor Wilson, you also have a Kubrick book coming, right? Yes, uh, that is in, I, I finished that about a year ago. That's through Liverpool University Press, their new um, uh, Kubrick Studies series. And it is uh, in the editorial stage right now. So ho- I'm hoping that comes out uh, next summer. Now, is that all uh, the same thing as the Nietzsche book? No, 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 that's, no, that's totally different. Yeah, it, it's a work of actually, it's a work kind of experimental uh, uh, science fiction theory and uh, criticism and film studies. Um, our third dickhead today oh. is is uh, um, I, I'm Langhorn J Tweed. Langhorn J Tweed. Um, Larry, tell the folks who you are and what you do. I'm Langhorn J Tweed. Exactly. All right, let's move on. So first up today is PKD News. Um, the first well, item of news. Plenty this time, isn't there? What? It seems like the uh, it seems like the message boards or whatever we call them nowadays the the groups or rooms or pages whatever we call them are just lit up recently with PKD activity. Yeah, there is. And a lot of that stuff I don't put on here because it's stuff that it's very, very PKD. (laughs) It's articles about like, you know, I read Game Players of Titan for the first time and discovered it said this. Um, No, but I'm talking about like uh, like different uh, festivals popping up and different events. Well, we we can promote that next year, the PKD Fest in Fort Morgan, which we talked about. With Lord Running Clam in our last episode that came out, um, Dick Fest in Fort Morgan uh, next June in um, Colorado, and at least 
two-thirds of, of the dickheads will be there, the current dickheads. Um, so uh, the, the, the ones whose names start with a D are going to be there. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, representing and um, hanging out. Um, and I know, I, I know for a fact I'm giving a talk on the unfinished stuff which, you know, of course, I just finished writing the book on. So uh, that'll be fun. But uh, that's neither here, here nor there. The first item that I wanted, there's a lot of music news related to PKD, which is interesting and weird. But um, there, for example, um, and I put an article, there's a um, an avant-garde band called Cellar Dweller, that played uh, Psych Music Fest that was apparently in Ohio, Galen, Ohio, uh, at the Troubadour Farm, I guess. I don't know. But, but they did a PKD-themed set, hmm. and they did this performance, and it they hinted that this would eventually become a concept album inspired by Philip K. Dick and UFO Abductions. And the only time Phil talked about UFO abductions was Confessions of a Crap Artist. And so, this book. And what? And this book. And this book, yeah. Um, because apparently Marion County was a hotbed of UFO activity in the early 60s. And the next thing of music-oriented things is that there was a performance of the Vallis Opera in Boston. Um and we're not going to go too deep into this performance that happened this month in September of 2023 because we are devoting a whole episode to friend of the podcast, Bill Cyril, who was one of Phil's very good friends, uh, managed to get himself a ticket at the last minute and got himself in. And we interviewed um, Professor Wilson and I interviewed Bill about his experience watching the opera. So you can go watch that episode. And that's a good reminder that if you're wondering where, like you keep talking about some of these episodes, I don't know where they are. It's because the bonus episodes are in a separate feed on Apple, which is the PKD heads bonus. So if you're not subscribed to the PKD bonus, you're not going to get those episodes. So make sure you're subscribed to those as well. Now, if you're following our episodes on SoundCloud, you're going to get them all because they're all going to be there. If you're following them on YouTube, YouTube, you're going to get them all because they're all there on YouTube. Um, One other piece we can tell you is that Bill also mentioned that it is the intention for that opera to go on the road. And the next time we'll be in China. So if you want to go to China to see the PKD opera... um, Maybe plan it along with your trip to the Hugo Awards in China. And then the last piece news item is um, the Carnegie Center, which is a art center in Lexington, Kentucky, is doing an event called um, it's the Carnegie Classics Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the book that inspired Blade Runner film series. There's going to be an open bar, live music, food carts, and um open bar and, i mean <laughs> yeah do andrew it says um an over this world experience humans and replicants alike 18 ages plus are invited to walk along the pages of phil k dick's 1968 cyberpunk dystopian novel do androids dream of electric sheep saturday november 4th 
uh, from 7 to 11 p.m. at the Carnegie Center. Explore sounds and visuals designed to awaken empathy, improve our humanity. Come dress in your 80s post-apocalyptic best for a literary experience. Hmm. And uh, there's a open bar and a no bar ticket. So, um, but that's a... I. Uh, it says it's and then the ads has escaped the off-world colonies so it's their uh nice. they got something fun planned and that's uh um, it sounds like they know what they're doing i mean at least by the uh the wording and the empathy and uh, you know it sounds like they've they've definitely read the book put it yes that way. <laughs> yeah and i like that it's titled after the book and not titled blade runner um so yeah because blade runner has a totally different connotation than the book i mean yeah. Now I grew up in Indiana and we were constantly told to make fun of Kentucky. Um, it's like <laughs> a, uh, it's kind of a tradition. Kentucky makes fun of us. We make fun of them. Um, so I was surprised to see, uh, anything cool happening in Kentucky that wasn't in Louisville, which Louisville, which is Louisville. a city I do like, I do like Louisville and I have a lot of good friends from Louisville. Um, but uh, if you're out there and you're near Kentucky, this would be a fun uh, or if you're in the Midwest, this might be a fun event. Um, yeah, I spent a month a month in Evansville doing a show. And yeah, uh, that's right by Kentucky. That is on the border. So I got to hear a lot about Kentucky and Indiana relationships. <laughs> yeah, they don't like each other. Yeah, <laughs> no. it's like a thing. This book. Now, we always do the what was happening when, and we usually do that based on when a book was published. Yeah. But, Why but I don't we think do that that's. Now? No, I think we should do 1960 when this book was written. Because I so think. Because it you, has, didn't, you, didn't, uh, you didn't do anything for 1984? I did not, in <laughs> fairness. I did it for 1960. But if you have something for 1984, we can talk about the differences between. That's actually curious because if the you Olympics, think about Scarface, uh, how about how shitty that Wonder Woman 1984 movie was? Holy oh, cow. wow! Yeah, great, a great performance by uh, what's his face, but that movie was trash. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't mind the first one; I just didn't like the second one. But. Well, it was you could say something. It was published right by Mark V. Zeezing in 1984. The, the indie press is that who it is? Who yeah. is the uh, publisher of my favorite horror novel of all time, Wet Bones, oh, by John Shirley. Really? Also the same publisher. Um, well, in, I, is it this one you're talking about? No, that's the Brit. That's the British edition. Oh, this one. This one's brilliant. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Golan's. What is the? I can't see what the company. Is. Well, I think it, Orion is the imprint, and I think they oh, uh, yeah. they they must own. Oh, yeah, to a lot of the mainstream his mainstream novels they i think almost all of them they yeah have. yeah and they did the paperback first in 88 i can tell you that oh okay so the book was written in 1960 so think about that it was this long time ago 1960 and the screen actors guild and the writers guild were on strike in 1960 um at the same time which is crazy because it's happening right now, which right. is really weird. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of times when they talk about the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild striking, they'll talk about how this hasn't happened since 1960, right? And so the first thing that I thought of when I was thinking about the fact that this was written in 1960 was that. 
Um, this was also the year that JFK announced he was running for president. And so think about it. This got published in 84. So um, what? Kennedy announced that he was running for president in 60. And it was published in 84 when Mondale was the Democratic candidate going against Reagan. That's, that's, a, that's a huge uh, little you know skip of time between this didn't get published until Reagan was president. And so think about how much it changed in the world. You'd gone from the Mercury program to the space shuttle. You've gone from... No civil rights to civil rights. Yeah. Um, black, black and white TV to VCRs. Like, a lot happened. No abortion time. to legal abortion. Yeah, and now we're back to... Yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah. But but here here's... I mean, that's a pretty crazy thing to think about when you're thinking just about the context of... This here. I was thinking that I was thinking that throughout this book, I was really thinking like, this is, I mean, not not in the the context of it was so long ago, but in the context that it wasn't that long ago, like this is one lifetime ago, basically. Yeah, it's eighty years ago, roughly, you know, seventy to eighty years mm -hmm. that everything in this book has changed. Yeah. Nothing in this book is is the same the way as it is now. Yeah. Now. yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get I know, to that. I know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the writing and publication history of, um, oh, so we didn't do, you know what we didn't do, Larry? Because we didn't do what was happening because we couldn't determine which year. We were, well, you, yeah, you did, you did. Okay, well, no, we did it. We didn't we do didn't, the bit. We didn't do, we didn't the, do bit. the bit. And some of our, our folks out there might be wondering, like what happened to the bit? All right, well let's well let's do it real quick. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Larry, what oh. was happening? No, I say that. Oh no, okay. You say the year. The year was 1960. David, what was happening in the year 1960? Well, it's funny you should ask, Larry, because I already told you. <laughs> <laughs> there, there we did it. There we did it. All right. So, on to the writing and publication history. <laughs> now, this one is curious because we have a little bit less details, even in the in uh, Lord Running Clam's Pink Beam Companion, about um, uh, the man whose teeth were alike. Because there, um, this was kind of a book that Phil uh, <laughs> didn't have much appreciation for. Um, he kind of submitted it once. And it kind of went away. And he was also very busy at the time because he had just finished Confessions of a Crap Artist and was doing the final edits on a little novel called Vulcan's Hammer. And the reason why he was doing these edits on Vulcan's Hammer is because the book was five years old when Ace decided to publish it. And so he felt like he needed to do another pass on Vulcan's Hammer. Now, Vulcan's Hammer... People should know. Under underrated book. Underrated book. Yeah, at least two thirds of the dickheads really appreciate uh, Vulcan's Hammer and think it's underrated. I think, I think Anthony liked it too. Yeah, Anthony yeah. did like it too. Isn't and, that the last book that you can put into that golden age category before he becomes truly Phil Dickey? No. Vulcan's Hammer? No. No, there's still 
a golden age. I wouldn't call it the golden. Well, no, you know what I mean. Like, like <laughs> yeah. before, one of those early, early books. Early books. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah. say that. I didn't mean golden age science fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's what it definitely has you. that early pulp feel. And the thing is, is that and one of the reasons why we always prop it up is because a lot of people shit on Vulcan's Hammer as being terrible. And there's many people, and in fact, I think Lord Running Clam is one of the ones who's not a big fan of it. Yeah. Um, and. Which is, I, I just have to say, I just have to say, after editing the Lord Running Clam thing, I had no idea how involved I was with that guy. Because uh, every every that. episode, I have his review and the the cast of characters on the screen, on on my other screen for, <laughs> right. for, for every episode. So that's why I said we were preparing. Basically, I read I read series. his his synopsis of the book. And see what he says. And I've had a whole relationship with this person I didn't even know who it was. <laughs> and now I've yeah. found out who that person is. Lord Ruddy Clam is super important. Yeah. And he has an Indiana background. So, woohoo! Uh, <laughs> it seems like everybody does all of a sudden. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I lived there for five years. Exactly. I, I, I lived there for less than a year. But, but you live there. So, yep. let's go Hoosiers. So, on that note... Um, I lived there when they were in the Final Four. So, Ooh. so here's the thing um, about... Well, the reason, one of the reasons why we constantly like prop up Vulcan's Hammer is a lot of people take Poopy on it and say that it's one of his worst novels and they're obviously smoking something because... No, it's because... It's clearly because basically, problems. it's a straight sci-fi, uh, pulp sci-fi book. You know, yeah, it, doesn't it doesn't have any of the alternate reality stuff and it doesn't it, it doesn't have any of that. It doesn't do a lot of the Dickian things. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's fantastic. It's I always I, I kind of I kind of compare that to uh, Kerouac's The Town in the City, hmm. which is a his first book that he published, which is a straight uh, story of a family, a Midwest or a East Coast but sort of Midwestern type family. And there's, there's nothing crazy in it, nothing beatnik about it. It's just, it's more like a, like a Steinbeck novel or something, uh, or F Scott Fitzgerald, or, you know, he's, he was, you could see the skill of a writer in that. And you could see in Vulcan's hammer that if Dick chose to, he could have written straight science fiction all he, all day. And, and not taking any chances, but he chose to go out on that limb just like Kerouac did. It's great. Yeah. And I appreciate Vulcan's Hammer for that, too. And I think um, an example of, of the pulp era PKD where it's done wrong, I think a better <laughs> example of that is Dr. Futurity, for example. Um, a... <laughs> Dr. White Knight. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with Dr. Futurity. So if you want to beat up and pick on one of those sci-fi books from that era, beat up on Dr. Futurity yeah. and leave poor Vulcan's hammer alone. <laughs> but, uh, just that's the, my, whole, the whole Native American thing is just terrible. And you know, Dr. Futurity. And Dr. Right. Futurity. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, so, um, he, but the point is, is that he was gearing up he had already I think when he wrote the man whose teeth were alike, he like knew he had to do the Vulcan's hammer edits and that was coming up. Um, but 
uh, really, and this is the intersection that it has with Unfinished PKD, which is the book I just finished writing. And um, there's a, a chapter about the lost mainstream novels in in my book, and that I'm basically quoting from my own book in this part of my notes from the thing, because a lot of what we know about the process of how this book happened comes from the process of which um, there was a editor at Harcourt Brace, um, which is hmm. a major publisher named Eleanor Dimoff. And Eleanor Dimoff um, was the almost editor of a lot of these mainstream novels. But she, what she kept doing was stringing Phil, Phil along for five years saying, I want to publish your books, but they're not quite ready. And he kept, she kept sending them back. Now, I tried to get more information about Eleanor Dimoff, and I thought if I Googled Eleanor Dimoff, there wouldn't be like a lot of people that had died with that name because I knew she she obviously wouldn't be with us. And I found her obituary, but there, there was one other woman with her name, and there was really nothing about this woman that I could find online. Um, that's, that's too bad. Yeah. And... Well, I know. I mean, I mean, she was probably she was an editor at a major, uh, a, a major publisher. It seemed like she would have more of a legacy. Exactly. Um, and she, it's funny because if you Google her, she comes up in Lord Running Clam's notes <laughs> for Pink Beam, and that's pretty much it. And. Um, although she was a major publisher at the, or she was a major editor at the time for a major publisher and she worked apparently with within the mainstream literary realm and um, Phil was very excited according to letters to to have her attention like she had enough notoriety that Phil was excited to work with her. To the point where he even considered going to New York to work directly with her on some of these books. But then the idea of making the trip, you know, just freaked him out too much and he didn't go. Um, hmm. And there was one book that he he worked on right after finishing The Man Who Japed called A Time for George Starv Stavros. And this was a manuscript that... that Got that was received at SMLA on October 17, 1955, very quickly after The Man Who Japed was turned in. And this was one of the longer uh, attempts at a mainstream novel, and apparently the one that Eleanor Dimoff put a lot of energy into, sending Phil several letters about it, and it's one that you will never see published because the manuscript was lost along the way however it's the man um that a time for george star stavros was important because it was the one that dimoff put the most energy into she was uh. trying very hard to get this one into publishing shape and at one time or another five different novels came across her desk from phil all mainstream novels okay and one of the most important ones was borderline science fiction and that's called Nicholas and the Higgs. And that's the one of the lost novels where the manuscript was lost that most makes me want to pull my hair out because it actually sounds 
pretty awesome. Really? Because it, even though he sent it to this editor who was... And, and trust me, it would not be called that if when it came out. Right. <laughs> and there are themes and little sci-fi ideas that would later make it into other novels. And if you want more details on that, you're going to have to read Unfinished PKD because I spent a lot of time on that. But that's not what we're talking about today. But Nicholas and the Higgs was... Phil's also, it was a doorstop novel. It was super fucking long. It was one of the really? longest things that Phil ever wrote. It was lost. And Time for George Stav- Stavros and Nicholas and the Higgs were the ones that Dimoff put the most energy into. However, this relates to the man whose teeth are all like because the genesis of this was after dancing around five books, Dimoff said, you're almost there, basically. Um... We're going to do we're going to work together on some of this stuff. And when he sat down to write The Man Whose Teeth Were All Alike, he was convinced that this is the one that Dimoff was going to do. Right. So he talked often about how his 50s science fiction was written with the eyes of Don Wolheim in mind. Like he was writing to I got to sell to Don Wolheim. He wrote this book thinking Eleanor Dimoff is going to buy this book. Okay. So that is one of the reasons why she's important. Um, as far as the five novels, we also know that um, Teeth was one of the few books that he didn't even send it to SMLA. He sent it directly to her. Okay. Hmm. Which is interesting. And um, by the way, as far as I can tell that annoyed SMLA, <laughs> That he sent it straight to her. Um, but she rejected it pretty simply. And there's a quote. Did you want to good read for that? Her. Good, for, good for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah and you want me to read a, that quote? Yeah, at some point. Sure. Yeah. This is Dimoff talking. At the, very short. Uh, at some yeah. point, the relationships between Phil's couples become so crystallized into a nasty, inhuman quarreling or such a dead end that somehow the characters become interesting only in a clinical way. Yeah. And that's a fair assessment. And I frankly, well, we'll get into it in a bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a lot of talk here about. Right. And Phil thought that the only thing that he ever said about teeth that we know of is that he thought it was a fusion of Nathaniel West and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And he like he compared the character of Leo Runspel, which of course is a name he recycled for Ubik, the last name Runspel. Well, isn't it Runciter? Glenn Runciter and Leo Bolero. Right. However, right. It, if you researched the um, the outlines for Ubik, like this guy has, you know that throughout the entire um outline glenn runciter is called glenn runcible in the which, which is the way it's the way it's listed in the uh in the cast of characters uh, of ubik is runcible yeah which oh. would, uh, threw me off when we actually did the book <laughs> <laughs> right so runcible runciter um i don't know why that name whatever like why he changed it, why, but throughout all the outlines, the uh, name Runspool came back up. Yeah. So anyways, not everyone would notice that. That's a deep cut nerd thing. But as soon as I saw Leo Runspool, and that's the thing is a lot of these novels that he 
didn't plan or he thought we're not going to get published, like we can build you. That's why we have Pris. And a lot of people try to connect Pris and we can build you to the Pris and do Android's dream. But it's really just an accident because it was a book that when he did do Android's dream, he had given up on we can build you. And then later on, somebody was like, no, I will publish that. Right. And then, then, then he just kept the name. And with Keith, I think, you know, some of the names. Yeah. And you're right. Leo Bolero was a character of three stigmata and, um, and runs. He, I mean, he repeats names all the time. Right. Which is but, why, I think you're, I think you're right. It's not intentional. It's not meant as a, as a nod to something. It's a strictly, uh, uh case to case basis where he's like, Oh, this isn't getting published. But I can I like that name, so I'm going to use it here. And it could be too that because I do this, uh, um, he's going along writing, you know, at rapid rate often, and uses a name as a placeholder, and he'll like, oh, maybe I'll go back and change that later, and then doesn't then doesn't yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> I don't know anyone who does that, and <laughs> including every writer who's ever lived. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think everybody's done that. So. Um, so in that character, according to Ann Dick's biography, Leo Runspel was based on a neighbor named Adolf Ako, A-K-O, um, was a local realtor, and he had been the captain of an Israeli ship during the War of Liberation that ran the British blockade, which is actually really interesting and in why he didn't use that in his character. I don't know. And it says... Um, Oko's wife, Gladys, was a sweet, pretty, somewhat vague woman who drank a lot, according to Anne. Um, Bill created the not very sympathetic picture of them as the Runspoles and the man whose teeth were alike. And in this book, he recounted some of the terrible sacrilegious Easter egg jokes that Captain Oko liked to tell. Um, according to Anne Dick, and that's page 42 of the search for Philip K. Dick by Anne Dick. And I have that book. Maybe. Yeah. I think we all do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was interesting. He specifically based Leo Runspel off one of the neighbors. And so the original idea was that Anne and um, Phil had this argument. Um, Okay, Larry had to prove that he has it. Okay. <laughs> We're complete now. Right. Uh, everybody has the everybody has their uh, correct materials in front of them. Yes. Turn to page 42. That's where you have your teeth. Turn to page like, 42 in your textbooks. Yeah. So um, the original inspiration was uh, some kind of debate where Anne and Phil were arguing whether Neanderthal man was vegetarian or not. Um, I think I'm on inside here, but, uh, that could be the vegan in me. Um, however, they had this like argument. They had hunting tools. They, they were not, they were not vegetarian. I'm, I'm just, I'm, you can be with <laughs> Phil. I can be on team Anne here. Um, but, uh, look, r regardless of whoever won the argument, the, the whole beginning idea of this novel was this argument, which is really kind of funny. Um, I mean, we're itching to go, so get through it. 
Okay, producing a trade. Okay, so Mark, we already talked about Zizing doing the publishing the trade paperback or or um, trade paperback edition limited hardback in June of 1984, and then the European uh, the Galan paperback happened in. 88. I don't know if Vintage did. Did Vintage do the mainstream novels? I don't think that they I did. Don't, I, don't, they... I don't know if they did. Just Crap Artist. That was the only one, I yeah, think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that was published so, during his lifetime, so that yeah. makes sense. Right. And then, um, so that's the writing and publication history of the man whose teeth were all alike. Exactly. <laughs> Did you mention um, uh, who Leo Runcible's based on? Yeah, yeah. The, um, okay. The um, that, that was all he talked about. What are you talking? About? No, no. The the, the civic minded man. That thing, I must have. Yeah, took. yeah. He was. Okay. That, uh, I blame. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that when we get into the themes. <laughs> he did. He, so so Dick is supposed to be the rapist, huh? No, I don't. No, isn't. Well, we'll get to the we'll get to that part and and no, well, you're talking about the publication history. You mentioned the the Runcible character, but you didn't mention the uh, the uh, what's his face, D'Ambrosio. D'Ambrosio. Yeah. The angry, yeah, no, I think he's mentioned. Hold on, let me look at that. Um, he was. I mean, this is basically a, a story of two men, you know, but and the women they subjugate. Yeah. 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 Uh, Pete and uh, Pete and Joan Stevens were neighbors that came over for drinks, and I think that that's who it was based on. Yeah, I think the whole thing with the the drunk and the get it, not being able, having the wife drive him to work was a neighbor named Pete and Joan Stevens. Mm-hmm. So, um, according to, uh, but I mean, there's there's all kinds of. Um, details here on the uh like in Anne's book she talks about like some of the little details about how they would go to Lions Club meetings and stuff like that. So I think that's how they interacted with that. But no. Phil Lions Clubs would be so much better if they were called donkey clubs, I think. (laughs) Even even though Anne and Phil's argument is put into other characters in this story. I don't think he was basing their relationship into any of these characters because really? he, he, well, he already did that in confessions of a crap artist. When did he write crap artist? Right before this. So he had just yeah, written. So that's why there's so many similarities between this and crap artists. Well, yeah. And also because they're about uh, Marin, Marin County. And that time there. And this is right when he moved there. And he's in the honeymoon period with Anne, where he was excited to be married to her. She was still still accidentally... portrayed her as a total bitch for some reason. Well, he hadn't started doing that yet. And um, this was still... I mean, this was still the phase where Anne was still, like, accidentally calling Phil by her dead husband's name (laughs) at parties from time to time. Like... So you don't... You don't think he based the D'Ambrosios on him and Anne? No, I don't think so. Well, because in, I mean, to me, all four of these characters are the characters in Crap Artist. You know, the the wife that gets tossed away, 
the young kid that ends up, you know, taking over for the old guy. It's a different story, obviously, mm. but it, it seems like they're all sort of the same. And you, you're going to let's find... get into that in themes. But before yeah, yeah, we do that, sorry, sorry, jump in the gun. Do that. You know what time it is? Uh, everybody Ooh. goes to pee and get water. Well, you do. Yeah. Down. <laughs> All right, Larry, tell us what the story is about while we go pee and get water. Yes. Fuck you. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's let's get into it. We start with Walter D'Ambrosio, who's a what? How, how would you describe him? Uh, he's a he's sort of an every, he's sort of an everyman to begin with. Uh, he has fears. He has you know he's sort of the sad sack character that we see in a lot of dick books, but. In this case, he's married to a stunningly beautiful upper-class woman who he got for some reason. We don't know how that happened or why that happened. We're never told. But he is super insecure, like like clinically. There's, some, there's something wrong with this dude. Then we meet Leo Runcible, who is a dick. He's just a dick from, from the first beat to the last beat he is a cock he is what what we in the business call an asshole uh and so these that these two guys uh butt heads because d'ambrosio invites his uh friend not friend but uh acquaintance from the the auto shop to his house for dinner no, no big deal there, but he's a black guy in 1955 or whatever, whenever this is set in Marin County, which is not really, really known for it being much of a melting pot. Oh, and especially at the time, <laughs> especially at the time and especially in that specific area. And so um, he invites him to dinner. That seems everything's copacetic. But then Runcible has a friend of his over who he's trying to sell stuff to. And the guy says, hey, I saw a a black guy at your neighbor's house. Are black people living in this neighborhood? And so Runcible, who we, we don't know why, but he flips out. Uh, he's, he's trying to be this idealist, but he's also a hardcore capitalist. So he's he's confronted with these two things that don't match. You can't be an idealist and a hardcore capitalist. That doesn't work. So he. I think Phil was commenting on his neighbor who was like kind of lionized in the in the hood. Oh, as yeah. like this guy who was fighting the good fight for for their water bills. And he and at the same time, I think Phil thought he was a dick when everybody else in the in the area thought he was like the bee's knees so well, i think that's to me that's a, a a great portrayal of of someone with conflicting views inside themselves you yeah. know how do you be an idealist and a capitalist at the same time it doesn't work so he 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 yells at this friend tells him to get out in a great scene where he's like oh yeah there might even be jews here i don't know and Runcible is jewish so he's like, well, what if there what if there are Jews in this neighborhood? What should we just shut down the entire neighborhood and everybody get fucking hung? 
who 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 knows and so he kicks this dude out and his wife and they're like the um generic white couple of the 50s who are like we're not racist but do you have black people living here after he he kicks this guy out the capitalist kicks back in he says well someone has to be to blame for this and it certainly isn't me because i'm a good guy and i know it so it has to be the guy that had the black guy over for dinner and uh so he starts this little neighborhood war with dombrasio and uh then dombrasio who is as i said totally insecure has problems with his wife she wants to have a job his boss is like, yeah, I'm going to give her a job because she's cool. And D'Ambrosio's like, what? A woman working? That makes no sense. She needs to be at home because then I'm less of a man somehow. And uh, so he gets drunk at a bar, you know, as you did in the 50s. You drive wherever, whenever. Drunk driving wasn't actually a real crime back then. It was a just uh, get home kind of crime, you know. Well, but they took his license. But they did take his license. So, uh, and Marin, hey, Marin was the first place to outlaw gas-powered blowers. So hmm. it, it, it's always been ahead of its time in, in passing laws. It also was the first place to pass anti-smoking-on-the-street uh, laws. So he... Max, the more you know... He uh, he sort of uh, gets stuck in a ditch right next to Runcible's house. Runcible knows the car, knows who's driving it, is pissed at this guy. So he calls the cops and says, there's a drunk driver running over children. You got to arrest him right away. And so then everything happens. Uh, there's some shit with a... a uh, stuff that most of you would have no idea what they're talking about when they're talking about leech fields and 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 stuff like that. Anyway, so so he's got his wife took the reins on this and and is getting their their system fixed. And we what we think is that there's some ancient you know Indian artifacts that are found on his land, and that. You know, running up the hill to uh, Runcible's house is this uh, burial mound that is supposed to have all this shit in it. Later, we find out that D'Ambrosio, in one of his rare, clever moments, uh, which doesn't honestly make any sense that he would be a practical joker when he has no personality at all. He, he has played this practical joke on Runcible by burying a bunch of stuff and creating a a skull that has uh, that looks like it's a Neanderthal, so he he does that and and then of course, Runcible being the cock ass that he is, he's like, well, I can't be wrong, so it it has to be legitimate because I called the newspapers and I said it's legitimate, so therefore it's legitimate no matter what. And so then the story goes on, stuff happens, there's a rape that is bad. And then uh, by the end, the rapist has a child and is happy. Runcible is 
the owner of the water company. There were some deformed people in the middle there somewhere. And uh, I walked away from this like, uh, well, I, I feel like I've wasted many hours of my life reading this book. <laughs> well, both of you guys didn't like this. Uh, you know, uh, well, we're getting ahead the, of ourselves, but yeah, the, yeah, the rationalizations in this were incredible. Like the way he weaves uh, the characters, you know, the way he turns them into their rationalizations from self-loathing to it's somebody else's fault is amazing. He he does that like almost every other page. And and it's always it's back and forth. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, that fits. was that was the, what kept me reading. Yep. Was this rationalization and, and the, uh, you know, like Runtable in the car. You know, he's all about finding out what's the truth. And then once they go to the poor, the poor part of town, he's like, "Fuck this, I'm out." It's, it's just like it just has had enough because. It no longer there's no longer any benefit for him, but he he looks at it like, okay, this is a, now a civic thing that I I'm doing, you know. It, it's just the, the way it's the, the I I don't know anybody else that has written this kind of 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 circular rationalization like this, and so and so realistic. That's uh, that's the praise I have for this book. That is that specific element. Well, um, before I get into the themes, I will give a thumbnail of where I'm going with this, which is as a as a Phil Dickian, the curiosity of how this connects to his life and what it says or comments on a period of his life made it interesting for me. But if I'm being honest. And I'm rating this book as a reading experience for anyone who isn't an uber nerd, like overly invested in this guy's life. <laughs> then I have to I have to look at it differently because my interest in what it says about his Marin County days and how this was written in his like honeymoon period with living north of of the bay is is all my curiosity for it. And, you know, there are weird things where he's transferring this debate that he had that inspired it with his wife between two characters who he picked randomly, basically, out of the, um, you know, kind of network of people that lived in this neighborhood. He took inspiration from two different couples, and then he took the two guys and put them into this argument that he was having, and that's interesting, right? That's that's interesting. But as far as the themes go, the themes that I have are uh, Marin County and married life, characters, wackadoo science, <laughs> and fillness and experimental writing. Because we haven't he talked actually, about wackadoo science in a while. I know, but this one definitely has a little bit of wackadoo. Little bit, little bits of wackadoo. Actually, it's, it's. I thought the science was pretty sound in this one, but I'm, I'm curious what you. Well, just when he get when Phil talks about science, it gets wackadooey. Even if like he's wackadooey. <laughs> um, but initial thoughts. Uh, New Professor favorite Wilson. word: wackadooey. 
<laughs> so I, I'll be concise now, but but <laughs> we'll get deeper into it as we go. I I, re, I, I liked it. Uh, 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 first of all, it's a work of horror and absurdism for me. Horror in terms of the the uh, racism and misogyny and all of that stuff. Uh, uh, but so I think in some ways effectively it's, rendered. It is horrifying. Yeah, <laughs> that is for sure. And I was actually kind of horrified too in that, like that sec I, I, during the rape scene. Like uh, I'd never seen because I'm not used to that. And, and, and at least that sort of uh, and geez, it could have been way more graphic than that. But from what I expect from uh, uh, PKD's writing, I, I was not expecting that. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, though, for me, it was it's a work of absurdism. But that's not what he was trying to do. Uh, uh, really, he, he, the sense I got from the uh, first hundred pages was that, okay, he's, he is really making an effort to populate this suburb and effectively represent gender relations and just the relationships between the, the uh, people in that community yeah. uh, in a very concerted way. And frankly, did kind of a good job at it. I, I was really impressed. I, I think that's really what you were responding I was... I mean, again, I, I go to the town in the city is that this felt to me like Dick's town in the city for the, you know, first 75 pages or whatever it is where he's. I mean, it's an honest description of yep. like small town life in Marin County and literally populating it with with uh, uh, different characters. We have our core characters who he develops, yeah. but then, you know, other characters Real people all around. Around. and yeah, it even uh, starts that way. It starts with the. You know, the 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 plumber, you know, yep. talking to the school teacher. I mean, that's a, absolutely it's like a classic, uh, you know, working stiff talking to a working stiff and they're yep. and they're discussing just bullshit. And it, it's a yeah, it, suburban stereotypes right. that moves into this kind of uh, uh, I mentioned this, I think, in our, our messages, um, you know, it's like a lifetime channel uh, uh, kind <laughs> yeah. of thing, a soap opera or something that he's. Right really trying to unfold yeah but then just like a lifetime special or, or movie it veers off into the like you say absurd yeah it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's over the top like all of a sudden everybody is just the worst possible human being you can right. think of. everybody and I, and I knew this wasn't going to happen but what i wanted in the end was an actual neanderthal to some in some way you know rise up out of a fucking cave and start like as a metaphor for everybody's uh uh, uh horrible psyches you have to read the simulacra and then you get your neanderthals in Northern right Europe. right <laughs> well, uh yeah, yeah yeah anyway those are just a few <laughs> preliminary comments yeah well and you know it's interesting because i think one of the reasons why the rape scene is so shocking beyond the fact that you know rape is horrible but is it is phil doesn't do a lot of kinky writing in his stuff well, and he's terrible at right. writing uh uh sex in any form well it never the scene it starts stuff. off as as breakup sex basically right and it starts off it's makeup sex it's not yeah, break makeup sex yeah, yeah. and <laughs> then it's Freudian it starts flip. off a little steamy, but then it goes, <laughs> it goes the other direction so fast. From, but I mean that's uh, it's perfectly realistic. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yes. the scariest part about it. Yes, is that it's not, it's not a production. 
yeah. you know he didn't he didn't like build it up it just like I'm, I'm this is happening and you know what it reminded yeah. me of specifically Animalists. Ar <laughs> Arnold's the divine madness of Philip K Dick where he was describing Phil himself acting that way like you know abusing his yeah. spouse I forgot I forgot which uh, ones but see that david that's why i i'm saying that there's a lot more dick in that d'ambrosio character than yeah than I, I, I felt a lot of pkd in that character yeah, yeah like he, he describes abuse the way an abuser would describe abuse like it's it's founded like there's a reason for it but there there is no reason behind it he's like no, no, she's causing this, not me. You know, that yeah. that to me sounds like someone she wants me rationalizing to feel their abuse. She wants me to feel terrible because she's got a job and I can't. She wants me to feel like I can't support her. Right. One of the reasons why I didn't feel like that that was so Phil is I was looking purely. I see now what you're saying, but I was looking at it purely from like the he obviously based the um the character, the the characteristics of this guy's life on other people, not but there's a certain but degree not the emotional, he, not the emotional, yeah. right? So, so we're both right in a sense, but like the thing the thing about it is is that Phil often, um, you know, there's aspects of Phil in all of his characters, which is one of the reasons that makes uh, Clan of the Alphine Moon so hilarious. <laughs> <It's> because, <laughs> You know, there are certain aspects of Phil in everybody. Never, but, um, I think well, it was. It, but in D'Ambrosio, it was mainly in terms of his neuroses. Uh, yeah. I got a very and I shouldn't say PKD himself, but the way in which variably PKD has been represented. Uh, I was very it much just, it just felt like it felt too real uh, to be uh, imagined. I, and I, I hate to say that uh, because I believe in imagination implicitly. Right. But, but there's there there was a certain uh, realness to the to the emotions that that D'Ambrosio shows yep. or thinks about that just felt like it had to be personal experience. But hell, who knows? Maybe he is that good of a writer, you know? Well, yeah. So let's start off with the um, let's start off with a little bit of the Marin County. Mer uh, Marin County Marin. Um, you got it. Uh, aspects. I mean, I think they're very sensitive. If you say San Rafael up there, you're going to get you're going to yeah. get you know that. It's like if you call uh, Houston Street in New York, you call it Houston Street. They're, they're, you're going to get yelled at. Yeah. And There's, Cooch, uh, Cooch in uh, Portland. Yeah, I was about to say couch in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> Cooch, yeah. Um, you say coach, yeah, huh. yeah. But if you say couch, people get they're like, "Oh, you're from somewhere else." Hey, I have a random question for for you guys. Uh, and this this I was thinking about it actually reading this book. So in in Midwest, and you you know this, uh, it, it's um, uh, tennis shoes, right? Out east, it's sneakers, and and here it's also pop. That's what made me think of it, Dick use pop to refer to soda it's soda out east what is uh uh soda called in california what do soda. you guys call it? is it soda yeah but here when i was growing up i called it pop but dick yeah, my, si my pop. sister's from san diego but she lives in virginia 
and uh, she calls it pop, and I hate it. Hmm. Yeah. I, that's a Midwesternism, though, isn't it? Uh, it's it's a lot of places call it pop. Oh, okay. All right. Um, but and it's not exclusive to the to the Midwest. Got it. But it, it's about equal pop and soda. And sneakers, we call them tennis shoes here. Yeah, that's what we, we do here. Yeah. Yeah. And other places call them sneakers. And, you know, and so, uh, in England, what do they call them? They call them trainers. I should know that. I can't remember. It's Been trainers. Is it? So I think it's curious that Phil opened with the water issues in the book, like on the very first and second page, right? And I think I think what he was trying to do is draw a contrast to living in the city, like that, like I think right from the bat, like I think this was a thing he noticed, like this is just not an issue I dealt with living in Berkeley, right? Mm-hmm. And so moving out to Marin County, like, in 1959 originally with Cleo this was the first time that Phil had lived outside of currently outside of that 1935 in Washington DC which he was mostly too young to remember or remember very little of um and of course which inspired now wait for last year with the um W35 version one of my favorites by the way yeah, I know, I know. You're 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 the now wait for last year Stan. Um, <laughs> I really like that novel too. I remember. Yeah. So, um, but but he that year in D.C. was the only year he had ever lived outside of Berkeley, and um, of course the boarding school in Ojai for a little bit, but he didn't really have a lot of experience living in the countryside. So this was you know, a very big change. Well, I can, I, I can relate to that uh, because I lived in the, I split my time between Oroville, California and San Diego. Uh, Oroville is dead country. I mean, the last time I talked to my dad was in uh, 1998. And he said, Oroville just got a supermarket. That's how small Oroville was. Right. It didn't even have a supermarket until 1998. So uh, it was uh, so when I moved to New York and I moved to the the country in in New York, you know, upstate, as they say, but upstate is everything except the city. So uh, but I lived in a place where we did have, you know, septic and we there was no garbage service. Uh, You know, we had well we had well water, all that stuff. Uh, So I lived Basically, what what Phil's talking about here is like just having to adjust to all these all these simple changes, things that you took for granted being a city dweller, you know, and now you have to pay attention to. Right. And and he's doing this through the eyes of the run spools initially. And um, I think most importantly on. Uh, page 19, I think the little, I think there's a lot of really good world building details about where he uses the ads that Runspool runs in the San Rafael paper. Um, and the fact that people are moving there and uh, specifically there's a line where he talks about, but the roads were improving and so were the cars. More and more people were moving to Marin County each month. The large towns had already become overcrowded and pop- property prices were going up. 
But, um, you know, he talks about how nice the trees are. But I think like the whole I think this little section does a really good job of which is funny because he might not have thought of it as world building just because he's writing about the scenario of where he is. But when you're reading the book 80 years on, it's important, the world building to setting the stage for what Marin County was like. Well, he was in a very uh, I also lived in Marin County, um, but he lived on on the coastal side. I lived right off the uh, 101. So I was in Novato, which is barely mentioned in the in the book, but they they talk about the Novato Bank. But, uh, you know, San Rafael, what is the big town? And it's not even a big town. (laughs) Right. You know, and I can imagine in the 50s, it was hardly it was hardly like it wasn't San Francisco North or anything like that. It was, yeah, you know, and San Rafael is where he was living when all the Scanner Darkly shit went down. So was he living in San Rafael? I thought he always lived over in on the uh, coastal side. uh, Well, his address was San Rafael. Let's say that. You know, um, he may have been living more towards the coast, but his address is technically, yeah, which is not a big place. I mean, my my curiosity with it is putting in his addresses to Google Maps and then like looking around on Google, Google Street View. So I don't know a ton about it. I, I, I've seen all the Berkeley houses. I haven't been to the North County ones, so. Hey, can I just real quick? I hadn't thought about this until you brought it up, but the the theme of water, foregrounding it at the beginning, subtextually, symbolically, or whatever you want to say, works really well because if you think about, you know, he's introducing everything like we were talking about earlier, he's populating the suburb. Of course, it turns out that the water's toxic, right? Like the people that live there. And then it also, seriously, and then it sets him (laughs) up for, in the end, you know, runcible. doesn't he buy the uh, because it's toxic? Buys he the water company. Buys the water company, <laughs> so he can look like a good guy at the expense of his bank account. Yeah. Yeah, he's in, I mean, that to me was. Uh, I mean, he's a terrible person, right? We he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's talk about clinic clinical uh, people. He's a clinical narcissist for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But I mean, the way he treats his wife, you can see he's a narcissist. Yeah. Uh, but that that whole idea that he's an idealist and a capitalist at the same time really was one of the uh, the finer points that I liked about this book, you know, was yeah. how do you reconcile those two things in your head? You know, you, you can't be all about the money and care about the, uh, care about the, the culture at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't fit. It's like, it, it, it's oil and water, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't mix. And what's interesting is that the real life guy had this like kind of Israeli war hero history kind of thing going on. And the fact that he didn't include that, I almost think is like might to some people at the time might have made him more sympathetic or I don't know, but it makes it would have made him a more interesting character if he had. Right. I knew I knew I did time with a guy that was uh, in the Israeli army. He was really intense. intense. You guys are hard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was a really nice guy because he was a drunk, and uh, <laughs> but uh, he was he was really intense at times. Yeah, and it says here that um, Anne said that Pete and Joan Stevens, who she, he mostly based the DeBrasios uh, off of, 
but their children still live in the area when she wrote this book. And um, it says here that Pete lives in the Bay Area and was uh, very amused to find out that he had become a character in a Philip K. Dick book. And um, apparently one of the characters in Zap Gun is also based on this character, hmm. according to Anne. He was amused? <laughs> So oh, just no, because he, he was a he was an inventor. He like that was one of his things. Is he was okay? So that fits with the uh, zap gun. Well, and fits with D'Ambrosio being a um, uh, he's a packaging designer, isn't he? But uh, highly skilled, apparently. I mean, if I, I if I could give him one prop, it would be that D'Ambrosio seemed like he was highly skilled. I couldn't tell, though, you know, Sherry, of course, wanted his job and, and kind of got it. Although I don't know if she got became part of creative because initially his boss. She what, said she was uh, getting more of that stuff. That's right. That's also, right. Sort of she pissed him off. You know, he was like, I, don't, I, I don't know. He is so shallow in that context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there are a lot of details about these characters in Ann Dick's book. Definitely the um, 42 through 44 of this book um, has a lot of details about like the neighbors and the people in the area. And um, it's interesting here. It says that the like she's just talking about certain neighbors. And um, for example, like the gym teacher at the uh, at the elementary school where their daughter where Anne's daughters went to school had gone to elementary school with Phil and Berkeley. And like, um, so it's just some interesting things about like cool. neighbors in the neighborhood. Um, you know, I, well, go ahead, David. I'm, yeah. And so the next thing that I really, I, I think is when you get into the characters is when you get into the kind of the racism in the area at the time, which is the next like real thing that I have. Um, and I know Professor Wilson also already commented on like kind of how horrible uh, the racism is, but it's a it's a key part to the beginning of the book because D'Ambrosio has the black mechanic over, and then Runcible being um, Jewish, but you know worried about the, the um, you know you get into this what, whole. Uh, you when get into this Israel? whole scene on page 45 where they're David, basically throw it back Dave, at once. Dave, David. Yes. <laughs> when was Israel uh, established? 49? Was it 49 or 59? 4849. Yeah. 4849. Okay. Yeah. So Israel is, is still a new place. 10 years old. Yes. At this point. Yeah. 10, 11 well, years old. When he, when he wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. But when it takes place is 55, right? He doesn't really say the year. I think he's just thinking of it as contemporary. I think mm -hmm. so. I always think of it as sixty, but you know, um, but yeah, with the with the racism involved here, I think the the most fundamental scene where it really talks about it, page forty five of the the launch edition. Um, I want to know why you doubt it. Uh, don't tell me. Oh, here. Um, 
I can swear to you that this is a really good place to bring up your kids. Nobody here would have Negroes visiting them. And if anybody sold to Negroes, then he broke off, winded, his heart labored. The same goes for Jews. Um, you won't find any Jews here to dirty up your streets. I'll tell you what. Why don't uh, Why don't you move here? They stared at him speechlessly. And then Runcible responds. This is um, all, I guess, talking. Then he says, are you a Nazi? You want to start up Dachau again or something? You know, like. Um, no, so he's flying. I mean, you read it calmly, but he's flying off the handle at that point. Yeah. He, yeah. He's like, no, 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 there's no, no, no Jews either. No, no yeah. one here to dirty up your fucking streets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. really animated at that point. I, so it's funny because he I made think. a big deal earlier. And this is where you're talking about the circular thing. He made a big deal earlier about the um how important it was that he gets his yeah he made a big deal about the black mechanic being there but then he's like no don't you know then he kind of confronts the racism so i think it does it is an interesting character thing because a lot of times um now i can see it as somebody who's taken notes from editors a lot of editors would be like well what does he really think you know well let's be clear here you, think you know, so? and I could see an editor saying, <laughs> yeah, I could see an editor very clearly yeah. telling a writer like, well, he's not. Well, what does he really think? Let's be more clear here. Right. But that, and, yeah, I mean, that would uh, the whole point is that he's trapped in, in those two v- viewpoints. You know, he's trapped between those two and they vacillate. You know, Wait, yeah. who, who's trapped? Uh, Lee, uh, uh, Runcible. Runcible. Okay, I, I didn't know if you meant him or PKD. Because my my question is, I'm he, sure PKD he, is. Too, he's but. clearly trying to do something here with race, right? Uh, it's there from beginning to end. You can't you can't get by ten pages without him trying to put some sort of a, a racist thing in there. But you know, in terms of representing the the stereotypes, he's, right? Yeah, he's he's For different characters. I mean. Uh, but but it's like dick is is sort of an asshole in himself but he really had progressive viewpoints on on what society should be you know as as far as everyone being free to do their own thing and all that stuff you know no racism but he never could reconcile himself to in his personal life uh treating women as equals and and stuff like that so he he himself was trapped in a like a cycle of of insecurity and violence and and you know and probably you know like we all have we all have thoughts at least i assume we all have thoughts that are like not good like some somewhat racist uh somewhat prejudiced in in some way at some point we think something bad and culture inscribes us all with yeah, the, with but we we don't. It's whether you act on that that matters, and, and I think Dick took the thoughts as as actions. So he his he had a, a certain self loathing just mm-hmm. by having thoughts of of racism and stuff like that. And so it's all so it's almost as if he's <laughs> in this book. He's like trying to because per- I've never seen him harp. Uh, right. uh, on race so much as in this book. Well, he does in what's the one with the black uh, president? Uh, the, uh, 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 Flow my tears. He does a little bit, right? But n- and Counter like Clock World. 
too. Counter Oh yeah, with the Black Bishop. Yeah. 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 I mean he did it several times in different things. And if you really think about it, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is very much uh, but, uh, but it's not this direct. It's not no, it's, direct. it's more metaphorical. It's, than it's more metaphorical, yes. And then, and really, like, you see, too, like, and and, and it's funny, Larry, because I, I, I think you're right about the back and forth, and I didn't really see it in my first reading of this, but that is really a huge part of it. And a lot of it's through, through Janet as well, when Janet's, like, trying to defend her husband, yeah. you know, you know, well, honestly, I, I mean, I, I think she hates it. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I, she's like, hey, we mind, did the right she, thing. You know, well, she does have the best rationalization in the whole book. You know, when she starts out like. Oh, I'm such a bad person. I feel all this guilt about, you know, getting my husband in trouble. And then she goes to, well, it's not my fault. And then she goes back to. Oh my God, it all is my fault. And she's crying and changing her shirt and forgetting to put on a shirt and stuff like that. It, it's just that scene is incredible with her just all over the place emotionally, but like rationalizing everything as she goes. And both Janet and Sherry fall in the line at the end, though, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is probably the worst. I mean, it's, it's definitely it's, the, the worst. Emotional thing that I could have suffered is like there's he he leaves it in such a, uh, the book ends in such a sorry state. It, it does. I mean, I, I there's no doubt. I mean, he's trying to 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 construct a critique of of let's limit it to racism and misogyny. How about uh, yeah. uh, and racism and misogyny kind of win in the end. And <laughs> it, you could take a message. The message away is that there's no way out of this shit. Yeah. You right. know. It's, so it's, it's pretty bleak. Dark. Yeah, it's very yeah. dark. Yeah, I mean, and, and I know Lord Running every, Plan referred to this book as the darkest of the mainstream novels. And yeah. I think what he was talking about is the fact that, like, it's a really bitter book. Like, um, like you know, there there's no, like, happy or amusing moments in this book. Really, it's just a lot of, like... There, there are some amusing moments but not... i find bickering very funny there's all kinds of bickering from beginning to end so, yeah. <laughs> and there's some there's some triumph in the middle you know when the wife gets uh, when sherry gets the job you know and she's doing well and her whole thing about abortion i thought was amazing uh oh, especially yeah. in a time when abortion was illegal she's like <laughs> fuck this i'm not having a kid yeah <laughs> And, you know, she and, you know, I got to say that when she stands up to Dembraz to her husband in this book and I had a, I had a thought about I have an aunt who um, I had this really kind of sad conversation with her one time where she was talking about how, you know, she grew up in a time where she felt like she wasn't supposed to go to college. She was just supposed to learn to type, you know, and because she because she grew up in Minnesota and, you know, and she was talking about how just because um, she was my my mom's twin sister. And then, um, really? yeah, my mom's twin sister. And then um, they had a younger my aunt Peggy was 12 years younger than them. And my aunt was telling me just that 12 year difference and how much expectations there were for you 
get a husband, you go to college just to learn secretarial and, you know, that she had these expectations that were expected of her. So I was thinking about that during a lot of this book when I was seeing, um, you know, D'Ambrosio's wife, um, I think her name was Sherry. It was Sherry, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Sherry's standing up and saying like, you know, um, and it's on page 91, you must be terribly insecure about your masculinity <laughs> if my if my getting a temporary job threatens you. You must feel that you're failing in some basic vital way. And like this whole argument where he's like, She's telling him, like, you're just being insecure, and then he just gets more insecure, like, and digs himself deeper of a hole. But for me, I was thinking, I did think that this was pretty progressive at the time for to have this this woman like stand up to her husband. But that's I I mean that's probably because Anne was progressive like that. Mm -hmm. I mean she she was very, very much doing her own thing. Well, and Sher- Sherry's kind of the sharpest uh, character. He, he is in definitely. And now, now think of it this way. Uh, uh, think of D'Ambrosio being correct in his ideas about his wife, that she does have a plan, that she is thinking ahead, that these are all planned attacks on her part because I mean, I read it as if he was insane to think these things. But looking back on it, she does have that sort of mental acuity. I mean, she yep. she's super smart and she she does look ahead and she knows what she has to get done. That argument on the on the uh, on the porch, you know, where she's like, this argument isn't about whatever you're talking about. It's about this thing. And, and she's just guiding him in certain ways. I mean, she really is uh, super manipulative and 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 uh, intelligent, whereas he's just a he's just a bro. You know? And she's particularly articulate uh, in turn with respect to his shortcomings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pointed, she calls him out on it all the time. Yeah. Uh, one of the funniest moments in relation to them too is. Uh, Page 142. Um, what has happened, she decided, is the whole structure of the family has broken down since World War II. Now, um, this is a common conservative you know, argument. But in World War II, women started, uh, welding, Janet, right? started welding in war plants like men. And communism it's has Janet. done the same thing. Um, as the war, Sherry D'Ambrosio should not be out earning a living because that is a man's job. That's um, that's the that's the part. That's yeah. where she does that whole like like logic train that leads her to being the good guy. Right, and so I love this part where he says, um, and this is like an internal monologue for this character at this point. Yeah, but it says in some ways. The D'Ambrosios are communists, she realized. This is, I think, Janet thinking yeah, this. Janet. Yeah, Janet says, in some ways, the D'Ambrosios are communists, she realized. That Negro they had visit them and consider that interracial marriage is part of the communist program for America. So Janet just goes full on, they're communists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because she got a job and was like, 
you know, the one working, you know, wearing the pants in the family kind of thing. <laughs> and on that on that page, David, I, I actually have a, a, a sentence underline that functions uh, as one of the theses of this novel. And it's this. What has happened, she decided, is that the whole structure of the family has broken down since World War Two. Yeah. And that's kind of what PKD seems to be unfolding here, you know. But but the whole thing is about her alleviating her own guilt for what her husband has done. That's the whole point of calling them communists in the end, is that she's absolving her and her husband of of blame. Janet and Leo. Yeah. Yeah. So she's she Janet's just like, well, it can't be our fault because they're communists. Yeah, and, and by the way, you, you know what pisses Leo off initially about D'Ambrosio is he fucked up a deal for him. Those yeah. people that came over to his house because he's a real estate agent, right? But he didn't. But D'Ambrosio didn't even fuck it up. Leo, well, no, he, he convinced himself because he got mad about the race thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he blamed that. You're absolutely right. Uh, he blamed it on D'Ambrosio, even though, yeah, he didn't do anything but have that guy over for dinner. Yeah. The entire book is a series of of rationalizations. Yep. And miscommunications, too. Right. Yeah. But yeah. The fact that neither guy will talk to the other is <laughs> absolutely like we, you know, people nowadays wouldn't even stand for that. We'd be like, well, you have a problem with this person. Just discuss it. You know, why wouldn't you discuss it with that guy? But the the pride of the 50s was something that we I don't even think we understand. Like as a man, you had a a specific job to do. You were not you were not the master of your of your destiny. You you were assigned a role at birth. You make a living. You support a wife. You have children. That is what you do in American society. You know, it wasn't like what what is your dream? Live out your dream. It, well, it didn't didn't have anything to do with that. And that's why it's a, such a, a practical societal role that you had to you had to play. And that's why that there's really little to grab onto this book unless you are reading it in the context of when it was written, right? Yeah. You you have to with this book, you have to look at it through those eyes because there, you know, there are certain books like like it's a I, period piece. I mean, yeah. well, like, for example, like yeah. I Am Legend is a book. It doesn't, you don't have to think about what you're, you mm -hmm. know, it could take place anytime. It doesn't matter. It could be it could still be the future and it still holds up. Right. Whereas like this book, like, you know, or I, I guess. Let's think it like um, there, there are pockets, pockets of American society that would, you know, consider this contemporary. But, yeah. uh, you know, we don't generally well, but, those people. <laughs> but take, for example, Sherry asking for a divorce, basically saying, I, I, I'm out of here. Right. Yeah. That's not that big or radical of a thing. If you now it is now it isn't yeah. right. But then a woman in that area at that time, she had no marriage, she had no uh, no legal right to divorce. Yeah. And for she her didn't to even say, have like, a checkbook. I, Women didn't get checkbooks until the 70s. So all those checks had to be signed by the husband. Well, and <laughs> I, it's exactly right. Well, and so this 
the context of this and what Phil was doing with having a character just say, fuck this, like, and part of the thing too is that she liked her husband, like she, to a degree, so thought he was an attractive guy. She wanted to fix it at first. Okay, but here's, was, the th- here's the thing is that Dick did not do a good job of explaining why these women are with these men. Yeah. He did a terrible job of, of like, why is this, uh, you know, rich society woman with this fucking bozo? Well, but it, do, it doesn't times in our lives never explained where you've wondered to one side or another of a couple like how yeah, but, person end but up. This is a novel, not <laughs> this is a novel. Yeah, you, and you know, the you thing could explain that. You could and you could solve a few yeah. little backstories here and there. Could have solved that. I I, I didn't think about yeah. that. But you're right. Presumably, though. So I'm reading rereading careers. I am alive and you are dead. And it okay. close to the beginning of it, and it, he mentions this book by name, but he was kind of talking about his mainstream novels in general. Apparently, uh, um, you know, they they were while of course he had trouble <laughs> publishing them. I'm not familiar with the popular landscape of mainstream novels, say, in the 1950s, but these were a lot better, he says, than most of the shit that was out there, the popular stuff, according to correct. Okay. Uh, okay, popular. Yeah, and, well, and more progressive, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I can't say the 50s. I, 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 I don't have a frame of reference for that. So I mean, I, I don't have a frame of reference because I you, just know what the, If the you're talking late do. 50s, you have the... You know, you have Naked Lunch and you have the Beat Generation. Well, that's not a popular mainstream novel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And I I really want to avoid uh, talking about the really terrible scene um, in this book. Yeah, Um, you kind of scared me with that. We have to be careful. (laughs) Well, no, it is true because I think... I think... I mean, I I don't think there's anyone here that's going to say there's any any value any any real merit uh to that to that scene other than it being stark reality yeah well it further it further develops his character in a darkly negative way you know it takes his character in a whole different direction yeah I, i can appreciate a sad sack but a sad sack rapist doesn't I mean, it's Brock yeah. Turner all over again. Fuck that guy. You well, know? because what what, oh, what happens in the scene is that 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 they're kind of consoling each other and they're getting over like a lot of the bad things, and then he just keeps pushing too far and pushing too far. <laughs> and and I mean, I the, the intimacy it starts as as honest intimacy. Um, but I mean, and, and honest passion as well. So honest intimacy, honest passion, but then as we, as we all know, honest passion can, has to be tempered with like, like, uh, uh, logic. You can't, you, you can't just be pure passion, you know? And yeah. And what he does, what he does is is the antithesis of passion because his sole goal was to get her pregnant you know we 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 look at it as like they're doing this 
this thing where he's he's playing with her breasts and it's she's she wants to have sex and and she's coy about it and but then you know it just turns on a dime it's like oh wow they're this, this passionate couple all of a sudden after a fight like they're having the the righteous makeup sex all right cool but then it's like it, it's it becomes his own um sort of plan of attack like she's been doing to him the whole time you know if you if you look at it that way he he's now now has his own plan of attack to ruin her like he, he thinks believes, that if she's he believes she's then, ruined him yeah that so, yeah that. it's it's about control and it's about power it's like yeah. every every time we hear about you know any of any sexual abuse it's always about power you know and there there are no consequences for him either you could i mean it functions as a a, a pretty no a, no it helps him that's the right but it functions as a for me anyway as a critique of the ordinariness of domestic violence right yeah. i mean it, it, you're right it helps him doesn't it yeah which is the worst part i think he wants which is why in my notes when i put i i i just wrote yikes um <laughs> by the by oh, this yeah. because yeah. i think this is like i um i pretty much took a star out of my rating of yeah. because of of everything that happens in relation to this it's yeah. not just no, the no i i did too I but mean, isn't the isn't the book isn't it doing its work then if it evokes that sort of visceral response from you guys but yeah. my problem it, is, is it, that there's I no consequences. There's no consequences for for. It's, but that that's the critique. That, I mean, there's no way out of this darkness. You know. No, I see what you're saying, but it's. Huh. It's, it's end, ugly. At that's the end, the, there's no. Yeah. The, there's no growth. There's no change. Uh, in, in either good or bad, like uh, emotional, in any way. Yeah. That's Everything right. is status quo, right? From the beginning I, of the book to the end of the book, it's all status quo. The that, situation and that is the critique. We can't slightly, get out of this this circle of of despair or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's a brilliant held by alpha, alpha masculinity. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. But well, it, it, and and it, it's interesting. But it, it doesn't feel good. No, it, it does doesn't. not feel good. No. And and he I do think he is but evocative. It yes, it's evocative. Yeah. And, and uh, the writing itself, I mean, because I felt I felt it like you guys did. That's why I was kind of impressed by this. I had not. That was a, a sort of side of but it feels that cheap. I, I haven't seen much. I, somehow it feels cheap. I think hmm. that's that's the thing that upsets me. You know, like, I like, like I like a visceral. I like a visceral response. Yeah. But somehow this one feels cheap. Oh, sorry. All right. Um, oh, sorry. I want to. I want to move the conversation on because I want to. I want to um, try to. What? What? You want to talk about something other than the book? Rosier and so. No, no, no. no. I want to move on. To, I want to finish talking about this book. Um, right. I, I would say the ugliest. One of the ugliest lines of dialogue in this book was. Um, there's a character that says on page 255, there's nothing more repulsive than a fat, ugly-looking pregnant woman. Um, some public relations, that would be like, 
I, and I was just like, I, I remember just, that whole that whole thing there is that whole thing about like like his his, like his reveling home. his reveling in her despair is disgusting. Yeah. And then she takes it in her own hands and takes care of the situation. And 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 at least you know, and I think for the time being of where when it was written. That's saying something, but I just remember reading that line and being like, whoa, uh, it just stuck out as something that was, uh, you know, really um, <laughs> brutal. Um, and I think when you personally, at- I think pregnancy is disgusting, but that's just a me thing. <laughs> well, I know people that are actually us people that, that like that no ever want to have children. Like it is it is a very different experience. Um, so I, I'll get into the wackadooey stuff here real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, so um, on page eighty five, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out someday that. Hilton's skull was fabricated by a clerical person bent on proving that all fossil remains were spurious. He hoped to get the pit, uh, pit down skull accepted by eminent scientific authorities of his day. Then he could spring it on, spring it on the world that he had put it together in his attic. Um, I think the concept that they would get this far you know that people would like actually look at the skull and like think it was the real thing is kind of wackadooey to just in in general. They did. That's real. <laughs> that happened. Um, <laughs> that doesn't make it any less. Plenty of wackadooey <laughs> stuff happens. I mean, Piltdown Man is a real thing. Yeah. That, that that legitimately happened. But wait, David, are you saying that you you don't buy that these suburbanites are 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 so interested in it? Is that- yeah, that's part of it. And I just yeah. think the whole like the whole thing with the skull, like it all just kind of skirts, even though I know it's based on real things. I think it just skirts a little bit of the like when he's talking about the science of it, it just comes off feeling wackadooey to me. And yeah. especially in the context of this book, like but at the same time, like I found myself thinking in those moments, I almost wish he'd gone more wackadoo. And then like if a science fiction a novel where he was allowing himself to go more surreal, like you were talking about. To me, it sounds more interesting. Yeah. So it's not like I'm anti wackadooey. I want more wackadooey. Go wackadooey. Of course, go, of course go, you do. Yeah. So yeah. this one is just, it just has too much. It's too real. There is no escapism here. I don't know. I think this functions just like one of his science fiction novels in terms of world building. Yes, there is more attention to character characterization. Yeah. Although, as you pointed the whole out, thing you know, is character. It's but not. not a, but more the, certain story backstories would have would have enhanced it. Let's say. But um, you know, he he is. This is uh, 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 you know a, a lot. The whole the theme of what is real and what isn't real. He plays with that in a variety of ways, including bringing the media into it when they come and, and uh, start problematizing uh, uh, everything going on with that skull. Oh, that, that, that phone call that he does to the Chronicle is my, yeah, yeah. my favorite yeah. part. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there is about, definitely a lot. You talk of about uh, there being a lack of humor, but that was hilarious to me. He's like, 
you can write whatever you want, but you won't have me to kick around anymore. <laughs> like they're thinking of him, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that whole narcissistic thing. It yeah, really, absolutely. Like, well, right that, here, and front, that, that's a common center. Uh, the Phil Dickian thing where, because I, I thought a lot of like, I always think of Regal Gum from um, Time Out of Joint, yeah, yeah. you know, for, for the narcissist. If the narcissist ceases to exist, well, of course, so does the whole world, right? Right. <laughs> um, and that's, I mean, that's narcissism that's uh, founded. <laughs> like, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. I, that was a great reversal right there. I, I loved that one. Yep. It's like, oh, wait, if I do cease to exist, the world does cease to exist. Of course. Well, I do think he plays with the what is real pretty intensely in this book. And so that is definitely something that plays with the theme. But he does it. That's, that's not necessarily he does it realistic. But... Yeah. Pardon? He does it in a realistic way because he has like it's within the context of the story. It's the whole idea of the is the skull real is the skull not. And it really, it's funny because if you think of it in the terms of this started as this argument between him and Anne about whether Neanderthals were vegetarian or not, and then, like, you move it into, he he takes it into this whole what is real thing and this whole societal look at what started as this argument that they were having about this totally other thing has turned into this book about toxic masculinity and what is real and yeah. racism and so he's doing a lot of things and damn it you're making me like this book more as i talking <laughs> about it um maybe i'll give it a star back um so uh you know no, are, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard it. one because because there are no likable really likable characters in it because uh, basically, if you want to, uh, you want to put it into exact terms, the evil wins in the end. You know, uh, it's hard to it's hard to say that uh, that this is a, a good book, right? But maybe that's what makes it a good book is that there are no likable people, and evil does win in the end. You know, uh, it's. But I mean, you know, you mentioned Naked Lunch earlier. Are there? Yeah. I love Naked Lunch. Are there any likable characters in that? <laughs> Everybody's a son of a bitch in that. Uh, uh, yeah, right. including the monsters. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I did. Well, I mean, the movie Fallen has. Uh, I mean, the devil wins in the end. The demon yeah. wins in the end. And that's a great movie. But like, uh, it's because there's, I don't know, there's a, a value that's missing in this book, and I can't, I can't define it. Um, so, so there is some things of where he's doing some experimental or some writing tricks that I'd never seen anywhere else in Phil, which is like the uh, fake uh, news headlines. I've never seen him do that before where they're used. I thought that, that scene was funny with the headline, uh, Runcible deplores old farts and fiery statement. So there was that whole part was funny. That that part was funny. Yeah, Fal Falk, Folk. What is his name? Yeah, Paul. runs full yeah, dirty little Jew uh, from outside is um, um, it's, it just says is allegation, which is funny. Um, and then um, yeah. like so light of fancy. I mean, that's... so because what he's doing with his headlines is he's saying this is what they're going to be saying about me internally. And he, by doing these headlines, that's he's, not saying, he's not saying that it's bulk that's coming up with the headlines. Wait, D'Ambrosio's boss, Seth, Seth no. Falk? 
No, no, that's a Loesch. Oh, you're right. That's right. Wait, who's Falk again? He's the newspaper guy. Okay, gotcha. He comes up with the uh, headlines. Right. There might be another section where where, uh, Runcible does it. Yeah, Runcible's thinking, he's thinking these thoughts like he's kind of making fun of himself in the headlines. Like he's saying, like this is what they're because there's a, there's more than one section with headlines. So yeah, yeah. There's um, the other one is on page two fifteen. Realtor skull pronounced hopes by University of Cal scientists. Well, that's and the that's, the actual chronicle. That's the actual headline, and then the, the one before is the ones that he would the ones that I read before are the ones he made up about himself. No, that's uh, that's folk. Are you sure? I'm pretty. I'm fairly sure. <laughs> well, anyways, the, the Runcible ones are later. I thought those headlines were funny. Um, and it's letters that he writes. And I thought that was some interesting filmness. Um, there was also, let me see, 215. Yeah, that's the um, University of California anthropologist. Oh, one thing I wanted to note on that. It said... University of California anthropologist studying the recently unearthed alleged Stone Age skull by realtor Leon Runspel says, um, but it says anthropologists involved in dis- detection of possible fraud, blah, 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 blah. Who, what anthropologist do you think that they would have contacted? And then it occurred to me that it could have been Ursula Le Guin's parents, you know, because <laughs> They were anthropologists at the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, that's all I've got on this book. Um, do we want to start with our reviews? And then, okay, so um, I'll start off and say that, you know, initially I gave this, um, uh, okay, initially I gave this uh, book two fake skulls out of five, but I think I'm going to give it an extra half skull back. Uh, So two and a half skulls because it did have more themes and issues going on upon discussion than I think I was initially giving it credit for. And I'm very close to giving it three skulls, but I just can't quite get there. (laughs) Yeah. So... Not quite to three skulls. So, Big D? Um, I, Wilson? I'm going to give it four out of five chuppers. Do you remember what those were? Yep. yep. Yeah, we, didn't, were, we didn't really talk about that much, but... Apparently, those are the... the deform- but they, they're the same as in the simulacra, which... When was that one written, David? 63. So, oh, okay. the same time frame but in and didn't so the chuppers were from like the earlier 20th century a family that drank the bad water and became deformed yeah, yeah. but uh, in in the simulacra they're actually are unique. you thinking about dr blood money because dr blood money is the one that has all the mutants no 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 okay. uh no remember the simulacra the the musician people go to northern california meet up with the uh, Neanderthals in Northern California. Hmm. You don't remember that? <laughs> uh, I don't remember the simulacra that well. I'm going to have to look back at oh, that. Oh, there's 51 uh, 
named characters or whatever he says in that one. It may be our friends from Frolics 8, too, because there was like the... No, it was the simulacra. Um, <laughs> but no, I was just, I, I'll give it four out of five chuppers for this reason, uh, as a dark, effectively rendered critique of patriarchy, misogyny, and racism, and alpha masculinity. Yeah, all those fun things. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, and I, I, I as, love as that. an interesting soap opera. I, I love that viewpoint because I absolutely did not see that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 can, I can totally understand it. As, Who as knows a, what he was trying to do, but yeah. But I don't give Phil that much credit. I don't think he intended for it to be those things, but I think it ended up. Oh yeah, who cares what he intended? Uh, uh, yeah, that, I'm, I'm just saying it could function that way. You know, yeah. you know, once I got in trouble in in high school because uh, there's a part of Hamlet that I thought was uh, different than what was accepted as the interpretation of what he was saying in this one soliloquy, and uh, I was like, no, fuck yeah, I don't, I don't care what everybody says, like. <laughs> Oh, that was the, what the author's intention was? I don't fuck the author. Yeah. What does the author know? I agree. <laughs> it, it, yeah. And there are no exceptions. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's open to interpretation every time by whoever sees sure. it. Sure. You know? <laughs> How they take it is is what's their reality of it. So, That's a good segue into your review. My review. I, I'm going to give it to Alfa Romeo's... Uh, because I I don't know maybe it's because I'm I'm simple because like I I just <laughs> I want someone to root for and while I wanted to root for Sherry I couldn't because she became such a coward at the end and then so I wanted to, I wanted to root for Dombrasio but what an asshole he turned out to be and Runcible total asshole. Uh, uh, what's her name? Janet fucking what? I don't even know what, what she was supposed to be. Well, she was mostly characterized as an alcoholic, but so let, let me ask yeah, you, a, that, was, that doesn't question. even mean anything. Like, so <laughs> let's say the two men, would it, would it have resonated more with you if the two dudes got what they deserved in various ways? And then uh, the women some way, uh, were in some way. That I think, and that, that might have made this book even more uh, attractive to uh, agents and publishers. You know, I know that's why I'm saying I'm simple. Is yeah, because well, like I wouldn't say that, but it's the, you know, I just want, I wanted there to be some positive resolution. It didn't have to be like Which everybody is gets what they want, everybody gets what they deserve. Which is one of the things that makes this novel outside of the PKD formula, because there's always, according to his formula, there's always supposed to be a humane act at the end of the book. Oh, is yeah. that why he writes all those shitty codas? <laughs> like, because he doesn't have any natural humane acts, so he can, <laughs> well, you know, and it depends. He just because one the humane, the like, like the humane act of Maze of Death is a dude deciding to be a cactus for yeah. the rest of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the humane act. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's kind of open to interpretation. But yeah, but, it, but, I mean, there is no, there's no one to root for here. There's nothing here that there's uh, not, there's no, I can latch on to and say, you know, at least this, at least this happened in the end. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. I mean, Sherry is the most rootable character in the thing, but 
you know, it's still still tough. But she ends up in utter sadness. Exactly. Like, yeah. And that's she, not she fun. seemed like uh, like the rest of her life is now charted for her. And, and she was absolutely headed to a, a good life, even given her privilege and everything about that. You know, um, I was still like, well, here's someone that that has a path and can stick to it. But she gets raped and then has the baby. <laughs> so that's not not great. No, nope. no. It's terrible. And so um, I see you smiling, Big D. <laughs> no, I, I I agree. You're right. I mean, you know, she would but be better like, by getting rid of. That's a, I mean, that seems like your jam. Like you're, like, what's that? You revel. You can revel in this, uh, uh badness. This, this dark. Oh yeah, I love it. The, the this, dark. It, yeah. Absolutely. No, and I, I love. And normally, normally I would be right there with you, but I just require one little nugget. Little nugget of, yeah. of good. Gotcha. I guess I'm an optimist. <laughs> um, but I felt bad after reading this. I felt like, wow. Yeah. And, it, and, and for me, I, it did make me feel things in a way that uh, PKD does not really anymore because I'm so familiar with his work and know what to expect, you know? Right, right. So I appreciate it in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, on that note, um, so the next section I have is um, how would we do this as a movie treatment? And I just wrote, nope. That's it. I'm not the movie. Oh, this, would, this would be a great uh, Lifetime special movie. <laughs> Maybe at the time. Do it on Lifetime. I got it. I mean, if we, movie, we got to have a Neanderthal running around crazy fucking people up at the end. Yeah. You know? I mean, you have to you have to change it somewhat. The unleashed ids. Of, and again, of, you need uh, that nugget of and, happiness at the end. <laughs> and your nugget of happiness, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, we'll do something for the gals, Janet and yeah. Sherry. They deserve to win. Yeah, they need it. <laughs> they need a win, even if it's not a big win. Right. All right. So we have two sections left. Wait, uh, I didn't even get to talk about who I would have directed. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I have no, I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I, I was going to say, all I've got is no, no movie. No movie. We're not doing this one. Not even if this the is like the easiest it. one to do as a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but you're yeah. always like the, the when we get to a straight novel, you're like, nope, no movie. <laughs> I mean, the title is uh, what, why? I, 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 yes, he had. I like I like the title. It really? almost it's almost a uh, catcher in the rye style title maybe it's the adverb i don't know it's 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 too well, long obviously i guess yeah. if you're if you're doing like a pastoral like, film look, i about... think like uh david says uh, if you get rid of exactly exactly doesn't need to be in there no so yeah i mean what's the difference between all alike and all exactly alike <laughs> what why is that you know who would really hate this title it's Stephen King because he hates adverbs. Adverbs, yeah. <laughs> um, like the adverb doesn't even need to be in there at all. No, it doesn't need to be there. Um, now, if I really, really was going to do a movie of this, I you could make a pastoral. Like, I would, I guess, like focus on, you know, the the misogyny and those issues that were you maybe focus on the women. Yeah, 
Yes. Yeah. They'd be the main characters. Yeah. I'd love to see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't. The guys aren't the main characters. The women are the main characters. Yeah. And yet I would title it Neanderthal. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's it. That would be Neanderthal. That, that would actually work. Kind on, of similar. On a lot of levels. Yeah. The Neanderthal whose levels. teeth were kind of similar. That would be my title for it. <laughs> Roughly. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. We're almost done. Um, Dick likes suggestions for this month. Does anyone want to go before me? I will. Okay. I got, have you guys seen Bo is Afraid, the film? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. So super Phil Dickian, very dark, very surreal. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's protagonist, Bo Wasserman. That's his name. Everything kind of happens to yeah, him. Yeah, like uh, the world changes around him or something? Or... Well, yeah, I mean, there's no way. You don't know if it's going on in his head or outside of his head. or It looked I, really I, Phil I Dickian, it, but it also looked three hours long, so that's scared me away. It is the best movie I've seen in a long time. I mean, sure. it, it's, it's not for everybody for sure. And I, I get really happy about gore and, uh, uh, you know, just sort of transgression in, gen in general. There's a whole thing with, like, his big balls that they rub in the face of the screen sometimes. And uh, uh, at any rate, it's like... Hey, uh, David, remember that movie we saw? The uh, what, was, what was that that movie about the, uh, the guy that travels through John is Dead or something like that? And the, the doorknob turns into a dick? And he's like, I, well, this door's unusable. <laughs> oh, it's um, John dies at the end. John dies at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Right. So is it like that? Don Corscarelli, no, no. the director of it, Phantasm, directed that. I, oh, really? Yeah. yeah. The, Bo is afraid. I don't know. It's it's pretty unique. And, but, you know, the, at its core, he uh, the main Joaquin Phoenix's character, he exhibits like, um, you know, tons of Phil Dickian neuroses and peccadillos, and they're just uncanny similarities. So it's worth it. That's talking. awesome. Yeah. Not only did we I, see John Dies at the end, but we're one of the few people that saw it in the theater because yeah. it only played in a few theaters. In, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> in Portland. We, wasn't that the Baghdad? Didn't we yeah, see Yeah, we that? saw it at the Baghdad. Yeah. Good times. <laughs> um, well... Uh, Bo isn't afraid. Yeah, it looks very Phil Dickian. I was scared away by the three hours because I wanted to go see it in the theater. We're big Joaquin fa Phoenix fans around here. Um, but I have been uh, scared away by the three hour runtime. But maybe I I'll, used to, I used I'll to put it higher on the list. You know who else really liked that movie is Anthony Trevino. Oh, okay. Uh, our former. Uh, That's actually group. a good recommendation. Yeah, Anthony. I, I used to I used to hate Joaquin Phoenix. Like his gladiator, um, he was terrible. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot terrible. about gladiator. Yeah. Well, he uh, hated like being his, in that his movie. His early movies, he was not, he did he not tell as a good actor. But over the years, he's become a, a, an amazing actor. Since The Master for me, kind of. The Master uh, was. See, hard I liked to, him since 8mm. hard to watch. <laughs> I'll, I'll I, say that. Uh, the Master was. I won't say. Not my favorite film, but it was really good. Like you didn't like him in Space Camp, <laughs> or U Turn, or anything. Oh, he was great! Oh anything, my God, U Turn! Anything before, anything before U Turn, I hate him. <laughs> After U Turn, I like him. Okay, 
Well, I think eight millimeter was right after U turn, but he was great in eight millimeter. Eight millimeter. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, is that pre Sony? Was anybody good in eight millimeter? I really? love eight millimeter. I I will defend eight millimeter. Is, is Gandolfini in that? Yes. Yeah, pre-soprano Gandolfini. And uh, Peter Stormare is great in it. Is Dino what was it Dino Velvet? Yeah, Dino yeah. Velvet. Yeah, <laughs> is his character. In fact, around these parts, we usually just refer to him as Dino Velvet when we see him in a movie. <laughs> um, so. Uh, whether it's a Big Lebowski, anything, we're like Dino Velvet, right. and I know most people would would not go there with Peter Stormare, but Peter Stormare, and I will connect to PKD, was oh, the yeah. surgeon in Minority Report. Yep. Oh, in, really? in the the only scene worth watching. No, no. Who hated that? That's right. Yeah. The only okay. Oh, yeah, the, the, the only scene who kept quacking, quack quack. He, the yeah. only scene that wasn't a promotion for watches or cars or. Uh, we know you hate Minority Report. Um, all right. Oh, yeah, so... Fuck Steven Spielberg. So, Larry, do you <laughs> Just have to bookend a... this properly. <laughs> Larry, do you have a dick-like suggestion this month? Uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of like this, where there's no happy endings. Uh, it's uh, Frostpunk. It's a game uh, by the people who did a, another fantastic game, This War of Mine. Uh, I think they are, uh, they're Eastern Bloc. I don't know if it's Ukraine or where they're from, but Frostpunk is basically, uh, the sun has been obscured by some means that we don't know. Either the sun's going out or there's a volcanic ash in the air or something. But uh, the world is full, is just frozen. And uh, a group of people leave London and they're going, They the warmest place is actually the North Pole. So they head to the North Pole and uh, it's, a, it's a society building game uh, where, where you have to build the building so people can eat, they can live, they can work. Uh, there's revolts, so you have to uh, either go. Uh, you can go one of two ways. You can go authoritarian, or you can go religious. That's your choice. There's no. There's no like. Let's make this a democracy, and everyone, everyone gets a vote. No, authoritarian, or the church runs everything. So, it's it's all sadness all the time. People die constantly. Everyone is unhappy. Everyone is sick. Everyone is uh, starving. And you try to maintain and build a society in basically a hole in the North Pole. It, well, is, it is utter sadness in a game. I, and I, I, will throw, I will throw this war of mine into the, into the mix as well, which is... There's a war that is is happening or has just happened, and you're in a war-torn country. It's all black and white. The game is pure black and white. And you start with two or three characters in an abandoned house, and they have to survive by like coming up with a way to get water, get food, get heat, 
because it's also frozen. Uh, and it's pure sadness the whole time as well. So if you want to play <laughs> the man whose teeth were all exactly alike in video game form, try Frostpunk. Or is it, is it new? This of mine. Uh, there's actually a Frostpunk 2 uh, that has come out. But no, it's not new. It's I think this war of mine is now. That sounds that sounds really interesting. Even though it violates my my new rule of supporting anything that adds punk to a genre at this point, like, I don't. I, I actually don't know why it's called frost punk. Lunar. There's. I saw one the other day that's like we're this is we're creating title punk, and then there was lunar punk, and I was just like, what the fuck is. I don't I, I I think it's uh it's a play on um on uh oh shit what is the uh what is the punk that they use the original cyberpunk cyberpunk no Which like is... the old old timey oh steampunk steampunk I think oh. it's a play on steampunk so is there like cross- a Victor- is there a Victorian aesthetic uh, yeah yeah, sort, yeah well sort of yeah so. Uh, I was okay it, it, with cyberpunk. Religion is the <laughs> religion is very Victorian in its application, but I was okay with cyberpunk because at least John Shirley wore dog collars and was in a punk band. But yeah, but cyberpunk's been around since then. Exactly, and then steampunk was okay because it was just one more. But when when you've gotten to the point of title and looter punk, yeah, and hope punk, the, that that's one too. Hope punk. It's supposed to be like positive sci-fi. It's called hope punk. Like, no, just what? Pre- what? <laughs> I once wrote an introduction for an anthology. That's an oxymoron, first of all. Yeah, I know. I wrote an intro for an anthology called Monk Punk years ago, and Monk. and traced everything from cyberpunk up to that point. This was like in the two thousands. Of course, it dis- Monk Punk disappeared almost immediately after that anthology came out. But it, they, people still try to capitalize on it, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. All right. So it, I, it reminds me of Rockabilly. How, uh, I mean, I, I used to hang with a bunch of Rockabilly band guys. And every Rockabilly band has like seven other things that are associated with it. Cyberbilly. uh Psycho Billy, oh yeah, Billy. Yeah. There's all these, all these <laughs> other titles for it. Western Billy, Bob Billy. <laughs> um, all right. So, <laughs> my friend never knew what his band was going to be called. Like they, they consider themselves Rockabilly, but then he'd be like, "So, what does this newspaper call us?" Oh, okay. Apparently, we're all these things too. <laughs> So for my dick-like suggestions, I considered the TV series 12 Monkeys, but then said no. But I did like the series 12 Monkeys. I I did watch all four seasons. and um, Crazy as a loon. Yeah. Uh, and I do think it's okay, but I'm, that's not going to be my dick-like suggestion. I'm gonna is that make, worth watching, though, David? Uh, it is. Yeah. It, there's a few times where it gets a little... little just watch Le Jete and get it over with. Oh, yeah. is that what they're doing? 20 minutes. Yeah. 20 minutes and you're done. Um, yeah, I think maybe like one season less I could have done with. But like, I don't know. It was good. And right. 12 Monkey Series 
gave Terry Metalis, um, made him a showrunner, and then he went on to do the best season of Star Trek Picard, and that wouldn't have happened without 12 Monkeys, and he brought a lot of the 12 Monkeys actors over to it, so I'll give him credit for that. Um, but my dick-like suggestions, I have a nonfiction book and a fiction book. For my nonfiction, I have the new edition of Counterfeit Worlds, which just came out this month from uh, Brian J. Robb. There is a 2006 edition, and this new edition has is updated with Electric Dreams and Man in the High Castle and Blade Runner 2049, and so it's up to the date. Um, I... I Brian does really good history. He gets into the backstory. He obviously reads the books. He doesn't just cover the movies. He knows the themes. He's coming on the podcast at some point. I think he's going to cover Blade Runner 2049 with us, which we've never done an episode on. Um, and then um, and then the introduction, the world's dick made, has a really good history. And uh, there was only I only nitpicked one fact in the entire book. Which is that he referred to he um, called uh, Earthshaker a straight mainstream novel, and it's a Gnostic fantasy. That's the only thing he got wrong in the whole book. Um, so uh, that's pretty good. Because I talked small. to Brian, and he's gonna he's sending me a copy of that. I'm gonna review it. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. I really like it, and it has a really detailed history of the making of Blade Runner and Total Recall. And the various versions of the Total Recall. So um, we're eventually going to cover the Dan O'Bannon script for Total Recall, which you will find oh, in this. Um, by the way, uh, one of our uh, patrons, Patreoners, or whatever they're called now. Patroners? Uh, patrons? Patroners. Patrons. Uh, is, is very much looking forward uh, to a Dan O'Bannon episode. We're getting there. We're getting there. I told him. Um, I told him you guys were working on it. Yeah, I've got the Total Recall script. I and I want. I, I want to. Do don't we have to read that? Because uh, I have it. Uh, his book on screen screenwriting. Yeah, I got. I I don't have that yet. I'm. Uh, but we'll get there. Um, he wrote a. He wrote a book on screenwriting. Dan O'Bannon wrote a book on screenwriting. Yes. Yep. And uh, you have to uh, include the the comic book he did with Mobius. Um, Counterfeit Worlds is my nonfiction suggestion. My fiction suggestion is the winner of this year's PKD Award for Best Novel, and that's The Extractionist by Kimberly Unger. And it's pretty good. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's going to make my top 10 list this year because it's pretty stacked this year, but I liked it. It's about, um, people who get stuck in virtual worlds and the main character is an extractionist who will pull you back to reality. So it's an actual dick-like dick winner? Yeah, it won the um, it won the PKD award and it actually has Dickian themes for for once, yes. <laughs> yeah, because a lot um, of those winners don't, don't really have those themes, do they? Nope, yeah. but this okay, time it does. And so it is for, actually. Or, I still don't understand the award, but it's for paperback. best paperback. Something. Yeah, paperback original, meaning that paperback it's no, original. Yeah, it's um. So it means it just means it never had a hardcover 
release. It never had a hardcover release, and it was released straight to paperback. And this particular one, um, yeah, it's very cyberpunky, like people trapped in realities, but updated. And the woman who wrote it's an actual computer programmer, so a lot of it went straight up there and over my head, and that's okay. Um, I'm I'm okay with that. Do you want me to read the synopsis? Oh, yeah. What's coming up next, What's uh, next? Professor Wilson? Okay. Uh, puttering about in a small land. And I got a little blurb here from Publishers Weekly, which was printed in this blurb in 1985. Uh, since his death in 1982, Dick's reputation has reached cult status, fueling the publication of many previously unpublished works. In this... One of his mainstream novels, Dick is most perceptive about the relationships between men and women. The story concerns Roger Lindahl, 30-ish, intense, very competent, but also very insecure. Shocker. He is married to Virginia, a cool, intelligent, distant woman. The Lindahls meet Chick and Liz Bonner. And as a friendship between the couples develops, Roger finds himself attracted to warm, earthy, simple Liz. The two stumble into an absurd affair, and when Virginia discovers what has happened, she blackmails her husband out of his business and what is left of his self-respect. Dick demonstrates a surer hand at delineating the complexities of married life than in most of his works, and he crafts the story with such skill that, though the conclusion has the inevitability of a Greek tragedy, it is fresh and unpredictable. There you go. Well, he had a tendency to fall in love with his friend's wives, so... Whether it's Grania Davis or Kristen Nelson, it happened a couple times. Yeah, didn't so. they? Uh, didn't they do some uh, heavy petting? The Nelsons <laughs> and the Dicks. Well, yeah, there there was, According there was rumors you. about that, but uh, we'll get into that. I thought, I thought Nelson said said that. He did. What? Yeah, there, yeah. All, there was all kinds of rogue heavy petting going on in the Dick household. I think. Yeah, um, I, yeah. It's funny because I saw an interview with Ray Nelson where he's like, we weren't exactly swappers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that... Yeah, but uh, but Grania Davis left, or she was going to divorce Avram Davidson already when, when she and Dick had their brief relationship. So she was already heading... They were both heading to divorce on their own. So that's what this novel's about. <laughs> so we'll see you next time for puttering about in a small world. Um, I think small land, small land, small land, yeah. whatever. Puttering uh, about in a small world would be something entirely different. It's a small world <laughs> it's after a all. Small world. <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, keep it, Barney. Keep it paranoid. Barney. <laughs> Stay paranoid. paranoid. You too, Barney. All right.